today's word comes from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 to 26. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the word of God. We're in a series where we're talking about um, the valleys of our church. So if you're new to our church, you're just good to find out what the things that we really care about, the things that are really important to us. And this week, we are going to talk about what it means that our church is all about making disciples, right? And so we have talked about a, a number of things so far. We've talked about how we are all of the gospel. We're always about the gospel, and we are driven by grace. We have talked about how we are an intergenerational family. The gospel moves forward to who, who's next. It's not always necessarily children or grandchildren, but it's like who's the next in, in terms of ministry and of the kingdom. Next, next generation in that way. Um, and today, we partic- and last week I talked about how we are here to call and reach and impact the nations and cross into cultures and today I want to talk about what it means that the Lord makes us disciples, and particularly missional disciples. Now this isn't a particularly, um, it, it doesn't seem like an especially very interesting portion of Scripture. Um, if you've been, you know, been pastored by me, you know that I, I think this is it's an absolutely golden piece of a uh, of, of, of passage in the Bible. And, um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about why it's so special and why it's relevant to the question of, of making disciples. So, um, in three parts. Part one, all right? In part one, um, disciples, not consumers. Right? In our church, we aim to be disciples, real followers of Jesus, and call other people to be real followers of Jesus and not religious consumers, okay? So, part one, disciples, not consumers. Part two, um, I'm going to call this part discipleship via life on life, all right? So, I'm going to plug something that's a really important ministry that we do in our church, which is called Life on Life Missional Discipleship. This is how we do it in our church, and that's part two, discipleship via life on life. And um, in part three, I want to say how disciples heal the nations, because that's, that's right here in this passage too. How disciples heal the nations, all right? So part one, um, 
First, let me just explain a little bit about what's going on here, and then I want to say something about um, you know, religious consumerism and, and discipleship. So um, for those of you who may not have some background on, on the early church history, first, all of the Christians, the first, all the early Christians, right after Je Jesus is crucified, then he dies, he resurrects from the dead, he trains a, a core group of Christians in the fundamental meaning of his death and resurrection, and then they begin to re-see and understand all of the Bible and all of life and history in light of what is Jesus has done through his death and resurrection, and then he ascends to heaven. Then the Lord pours out the Holy Spirit on all the believers, and this is called Pentecost. And then this extraordinary thing happens. I mean, some start speaking different languages, and this incredible movement, the, what we would call the early Christian movement, happens then. So what happens is then Peter gives up, gives an incredible sermon, and 5,000 people are saved. Very first church is a megachurch. All of them are Jews. This is what happens. So they're all in Jerusalem. Everybody's Jewish. And there's um, probably, um, most of them are probably are Palestinian Jews, and they probably primarily speak some version of Aramaic, which is a, you know, a Hebrew dialect. And then there's all the other kinds of Jews that live in other portions of the Mediterranean, and they probably primarily spoke Greek. So they might, so Paul is that way. Paul is Hellenistic in terms of his culture, but he's also a Hebrew. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. So at the very beginning, they're all, they're all Jews. So at this, at this point of time, so you read this passage that we just heard that so far in another city, not in Jerusalem, but in Antioch, that's where you first hear this term Christian. So I want to just say a little something about this. This term Christian was not from, God didn't make this word, <laughs> make up this word Christian. Human beings came up with this term Christian and it, and Early on, nobody used it. <laughs> so one of the reasons I want to say, um, the reason I'm starting off this way is because, you know, I, if most of the people, if, I don't know if you know this, but religion all throughout the world and throughout history is largely seen as an, ethno, as an ethnocentric reality. And it's still pretty much that way. So, you know, around the rest of the world, if you go to another part of the, you know, go to another part of the world and they find out that you're American, do you know what they think that you are? They assume that if you're American, you are probably some kind of Christian. <laughs> because isn't America a Christian country? And so doesn't, aren't all Americans Christians? And, you know, and most people in the world know that the majority of Americans are Caucasians. And so they see a Caucasian person from America, they think you're a Christian. <laughs> you know that? And of course, if you live in America, and especially if you live in Silicon Valley, that's hilarious. <laughs> that is hilarious. And yet, that is the perception all around the world. Why? Because we're the weird country that thinks that the government and the whole nation and the culture isn't supposed to have an establishment religion. But almost everywhere else around the world and all throughout history, they do. They already believe, they, they believe that. So for example, if you grew up in Thailand... Do you know that everybody in Thailand is assumed to be Buddhist? The government is Buddhist. The values in the schools are Buddhist. 
And the majority of the people who grow up there, they practice some version or another. I mean, they, they don't probably practice. Just like here, there's all kinds of different kinds of Christians in America. It's not like the establishment religion of America. It is the, it is the most dominant religion in America. Although I would say more and more the dominant religion in America is now like becoming some kind of secularism. But the most commonly practiced religion in America is Christianity. But just like in Thailand, there's probably all kinds of different kinds of Buddhists. But it is the establishment faith of that society. You know what? That's completely normal in history. You go to other societies, they're, they're Muslim. If you are a Turk, guess what? You're supposed to be a Muslim. <laughs> and so if you decide you want to follow Jesus and get baptized, basically all hell's going to break loose inside your family. <laughs> and in your family, not just inside your family, there are like, you'll get taxed differently. You'll, jobs will get closed off to you. All kinds of things like that are going to happen. And so when this passage says that there's a particular time when people were first called Christians, you need to understand that this is the reality that we're talking about here. So at the beginning, there are these people, these strange people, they're Jews. They believe in some God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and strangely, they think he's the only true God there is. Right? And they have this strange practice where like, they, they, don't, they don't work once a week, and so everybody knows that Jews are odd, right? These folks over here, they're polytheistic. These people believe in Zeus. These believe, they're Zoroastrians over here, etc. That's what's going on all throughout. It's, this, this time is not unlike our time. It's a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-religious time. This is the Roman Empire time. And so all the first people who believe that Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah, and that he's actually God in the flesh who came to redeem our sins, all the first ones are Jews. So at the beginning, everybody who looks at these people who say they believe that this guy, somehow Jesus is somebody we're supposed to worship because he's actually God, everybody else who's not Jewish would think that's some weird Jewish, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a Jewish problem. These Jews over here hate these Jews over here because these Jews, this is how they're going to worship this guy. But it's pretty much an intra-Jewish fight. That's how everybody thought of it. And then what happened was, then there was persecution. And actually the persecution came from Jews. So the Jews stoned this guy named Stephen. And then because of this violence and death, all those who first began to believe in Jesus, remember they're all Jews, they scattered. And some of them end up in this city, Antioch. So, you know, I, in the past, sometimes I even show you the map, but Antioch is significantly north. It's kind of like, um, the difference between here and, say, like Seattle. So it's not super far away, but it's not close. So Antioch is like the distance of Seattle from the Bay Area. So these people get up, move up to Antioch, and they believe in Jesus. And what they started to do is they started sharing. So what's happening in this text is they started sharing about the gospel, this good news about who is Jesus and what he's done for us. And it says here that, at the beginning, they were speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, these are Cyrenian Jews, Cyprus Jews, they came to Antioch and spoke to the Hellenists. That's the way the passage puts it. Also preaching the Lord Jesus. So by Hellenists, what does that mean? 
a Hellenist is basically anyone who speaks Greek. <laughs> so they might have been, I don't know, they might have been from North Africa, dark-skinned. They might have been from Italy, a little bit lighter-skinned. They might have been a little bit more from what we would call the Middle East. Maybe they were Turks, except they didn't call them Turks back then. And they were maybe, I don't know, olive-skinned. All of them are Hellenists. And so if you were educated in the Greek philosophies, which is the, the dominant views of the time, and then you began to practice speaking Greek and you were, went into global trade because that's basically what, the way it worked back then, globalization back then, you would speak Greek. So for the first time now, the gospel is now breaking through this ethnic barrier and they're telling people about how they can receive salvation and they start to believe. And so I remember listening to a message many years ago and the pastor described what the city of Antioch was like. So um, Romans aren't, how did the Romans keep the peace in a multicultural and a multi-ethnic empire. So, you know, nobody solved this problem. We live in America today. The biggest problem in America today is race and culture. <laughs> different race, different ethnicities. People don't like each other, different values. You know why? Well, they show up with different values, different religions. And in America, we think, well, we're all just multicultural and let's just be tolerant and then we can all just become one nation and love each other. That really works great, doesn't it? It doesn't because it's completely normal that we have this skin color and my ancestors come back from back here and we have this religion. And we're going to meet you. Oh, wait, you're a different skin color, different religion, different values. You're from over there. Okay, you know, it's okay. Come to our restaurant and eat our food, but there's no way I'm letting my daughter marry your kid. And guess what? 2,000 years later, it hasn't changed, it hasn't changed very much at all. How did the Romans keep the peace in this type of empire? You know how they did it? They segregated everybody. <laughs> so literally, you have this city, which has an outer wall, and then inside the city, there are quarters. There are certain sectors. So they would say, all right, you people over there, this is your neighborhood. You people over here, this is your And there's walls. And so these people kind of had their culture over here, their food's over here. They had their religious practice over here. And in this way, the Romans kept the city and then, then, then there would be like global commerce and that's how they did it. So what happens here in this passage is actually rather extraordinary. These Jewish Christians start telling the gospel to all these people who are, you know, they speak Greek, you know, these are common language, people from around the world, they start believing in Jesus. They're like, okay, now, now I want to get baptized and worship him. Where do we worship him? Well, the church is like over there. What's over there? That's like two, two segregated segments over. You'd have to cross your wall, cross the other into the other colored people's wall, and then cross that one to get to the house where they're doing church. And as you can see, it's growing. People are hearing about Jesus and it's growing. And so what would happen is people in, in the city started to notice Hey, where are you going, church? <laughs> church, what's that? Well, I, I, I believe in Jesus. And some of them would go, where, why do you, you're not supposed to go into that neighborhood over there. We don't like those people. <laughs> oh, I'm going to go over there and then we're gonna, I'm going to pick up a friend and then we're going to cross over to the next sector. 
Oh, you mean those people? Well, we like those people even less. Well, that's where the church is. Oh, that's what you're doing? And all throughout the city, this is happening. And as this would happen all throughout the city, and then these people would gather together, they would see this gathering of people, and they don't know really what to call them. All they knew is there's this figure named Christ. And they seem to worship this figure named Christ. And so this name came about because all the other religions are based on a specific ethnicity. But not this one. Not this one. For the first time, we don't know what to call you because this guy is Jewish and this guy's from Cyprus and this guy's from Italy and this guy's from Turkey and this person's from North Africa. What, what are we supposed to call you? So everybody here is interested in this Christ guy. Why don't we call you Christians? That's where the name comes from. That's where the name comes from. Now, what, what does it say here? If you go to the latter portion of, of, of the passage, right? It says, a great many people were added to the Lord. Here's verse 25. So Barnabas, who's one of the leaders, one of the, one of the really important leaders, went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Saul becomes Paul, who wrote 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. And when he had found him, when Barnabas had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch because they knew that, he knew that Paul was going to be one of those brilliant teachers. And who is good at teaching all these Greek-speaking people? I'm going to go find this guy. That was Paul. Saul, and then his name later becomes Paul. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people and in Antioch, the disciples, that's the way I put it, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this. Um, in their time, if you are a disciple, like sometimes we tend to think disciples, those are the special 12 guys with Jesus. Only they're the disciples. No. In this time, a disciple, it's, just a, it's a totally common word. It has a very specific meaning. In this time, a disciple is someone who follows someone else, usually with some meaning about God. So it isn't that word isn't even specific to the Christians. I mean, there wasn't even a, a word called Christian up to that point. So the Jews had it. If a person wanted to follow this rabbi's teaching of the Torah, he'd become a, a disciple of that rabbi. If you believed in this other kind of, uh, you know, if you, were a, if you were part, one of the other popular religions of time is Gnosticism. And Gnosticism believed that you have to have a special knowledge and the higher the knowledge, you can kind of like go up in rank and, and you're supposed to give more money and so forth. And it's not unlike Scientology today, okay? <laughs> right? And, and not unlike Scientology today, guess what? You need to follow somebody and that person sort of becomes like your guru and you would be their disciple, so this is the word they use. A disciple is one who follows, is one who learns, follows, obeys, and shapes their life after the way of, of, of their leader. And here, this is the word that's used. It is the disciples of Jesus Christ. And what are we going to call them? We're going to call them Christians. Now that's a roundabout way for me to let you know this is the way the church is supposed to be like. Now, if you start layering on 2,000 years of, of Christian history in the West, you, here's what starts to happen. You know, up to this point, if you're going to follow, be a follower of this Jesus person, 
you're going to incur cost. If you're Jewish, your Jewish family will probably hate your guts. If you are, you know, if you're Gnostic, your Gnostic family is going to hate your guts. So all these people that are, they are crossing racial barriers, they're crossing ethnic barriers, and their family is starting to get really angry at them so they can gather together into this new kind of gathering called Christians. And they're not going to just show up to go to religion. They're not doing religion. They're showing up to follow. <laughs> this is the way God intended it, to bring followers, and those followers could break and transcend all the different barriers by sharing the gospel to other people. So this is why we mean all discipleship is missional, and at the center of discipleship is following together, and all other allegiances and identities will be transcended and actually healed through Jesus. This is what discipleship is. But when you start adding, you go like 300 years later after this event, what happens is Christianity becomes the dominant religion of the whole empire. So you guys heard, heard of a guy named Constantine? 100 years before Constantine, they're murdering the Christians. <laughs> they're burning them at the stake. They're crucifying them, all this other stuff. But then Constantine comes along and up to this point, so many more people are starting to get converted. You know, you could think, is Constantine the super pious person? There's even debates on whether he even really believed in Jesus. But he was politically pretty savvy. When 40% of the empire is starting to believe in Jesus, let's pick a winner. Let's pick a religion that starts to bring peace, that can start to transcend the ethnic barriers. And he made Christianity the religion of the empire, and then it just started spreading like wildfire. But afterwards, you know, people don't, now if you don't have to incur cost, it's this idea of being a disciple, a disciple seems kind of hard. Like you have to follow, you're supposed to obey, you're supposed to be more serious about it, you're supposed to be brave. Now everybody's supposed to be a Christian. <laughs> everybody's supposed to be a Christian. And so now what do, what do people do? What they start to do is they kind of lower the bar. <laughs> and like, if you're just going to be a decent person in the Roman Empire now, and now all the favorite positions are Christians. Like the Christians kind of control the different jobs. Before, if you were a Christian, you had no chance of getting a good job in the Roman Empire. But 100 years after Constantine, well, you know, if you're like a Buddhist, you probably wouldn't get a top job in the government. And now it all starts to, but so... You're like, well, go to church. I like church. I'll go to church once a month. Show my face. Go to Bible study occasionally. And, you know, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to take it too seriously because, you know, there's really important things like, you know, making money and, and finding a really good wife and making sure my kids get a really good job. You know, those are the, you know, those are the things that really kind of are practical and really matter. This church stuff, let's just kind of keep it kind of manageable in there. That's what will start to happening. And all throughout Western Christian history, now you have this tension of what it means to be a Christian, which means I adhere to this religion called Christianity and what it means to be a disciple. But in the Bible, there was never intended to be a tension between being a Christian and being a disciple. A Christian is one who is intended to be of Christ. All those who are intended to be of Christ are disciples, followers of Jesus. Now, let me say a little something that there's a few people who came to, 
to intro to revive. This is, this is like the booklet that I use to teach um, our membership class. And there's a little portion where we talk about today's value of making disciples. And this is something I, I taught this morning. Some people attend church to learn morality, grow in values, practice religion, and to be a good person. Some people, that's why they go to church. And what, we, well, what I taught this morning is that's not why Revive does it. <laughs> Revive is not interested in offering you religion or morality. Now, you're going to get some religion and you're going to get some morality in our church, but that isn't why we want to draw you to church. But there's a lot of people who go to church for that reason. Let me give you a second one. Some come to be consumers of religious goods. So there's a lot of secular people today in our city, and they don't understand why people go to church. And if you ask me, I think they're totally ignorant. <laughs> there's a lot of good secular reasons to go to church. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's good things. Like, I'm lonely and I need friends. Well, church is a good place to find friends because they'll actually try to actually love you. What if something really hard happens in your life? Man, the pastor might show up in front and ask the whole church to pray for you <laughs> and then bring meals to your house like what happened today. Right? But there are other reasons why you might want to go to church, like find a wife. <laughs> you know, maybe a wife who didn't spend all her 20s like partying and doing some unsavory things, right? Or um, make connections. You know, you want to do, you're like, hey, I need to find a new job. Who's going to care for me and help me like advance in my career and like do well for my family? Church is a good place. <laughs> Or, um, here's, here's a good one. Find good influences for my kids. I want my kids to be good kids. Oh, let's go to church. Then, you know, the church kids will influence my kids, and then they'll have good adults. In. You know what? It's smart. Those are all good reasons to go to church, but that's not why we want you to come to this church. If you come to those church, this church this way, you're being a consumer. And... I'll be really honest with you. I'm not interested in consumers. <laughs> um, because you'll show up and as soon as we don't do the thing that you are here to do, get what am I going to get out of it? We don't do that as well. You'll probably get mad and leave. And I'll be like, okay, fine. That's, you know what we're here for? Disciples. We want to teach you to follow. To really know Jesus because that's really what's going to truly transform and impact your life. And as we do it together, we're going to be the kind of people, like in the Church of Antioch, that can impact our city. Okay? Um, let's go to part two. Part two of my message, how do we do it? How do we do discipleship? Now, on one level, almost everything in our church is geared toward making you into a disciple. So if you if are here today and you don't believe in Jesus no problem. We'd love that you're here. We believe that worship is both for Christians and for non-Christians. And so we always want non-Christians coming here and hearing the gospel and going like, so that's what these Christians do. <laughs> okay, well, that's interesting, right? But also at the core of discipleship is to love God. And how do you express that love for God? To exalt him, to love him, and to receive his word and then every week, you want to, we want you to walk out of here with a conviction to follow, right? But there's all kinds of other things. We have, like, we have our small group ministry. 
Because it's not something you do on your own. And there we're going to chew on the sermon. And then we're going to spur each other toward life changes. And then there's going to be some, the bottom's going to drop out sometimes. And then we're going to support each other. At times we're going to have classes on teaching the Bible. That's the classic method. The classic method in the church is you have Sunday that gathers the whole crowd. And then we may have a small group where we like support each other in life. And then there might be like Sunday school, a class. And you're going to learn the Bible and then try to apply and obey the Bible. But over the years, one of the things that we have learned is if you go to a class and then you learn some content and maybe you even take a quiz or a test, let me ask you this question. How good are you, are you at that content? So some of you are really good at your jobs, right? How did you get really good at your job? By going to class for 12 weeks, learning all the content, and spitting it out at a test, and then you showed up your job, and then you're really good at your job, right? Is that how it works? That's not how it works. You know how you, how you got good at your jobs? Somebody showed you how to do it. Probably. In all likelihood, the vast majority of people, you need somebody to come alongside of you. You watch, like there's, there's all these little hidden little things that you didn't know about that you have to, to, to learn. You're like, you are, you know, our, our brother this morning was telling me about like what he has to teach his lead. <laughs> it's like you, he, like he, he runs, um, you know, uh, uh, the local fast, uh, local fast food joint here and he has to train his lead to train that person to like, you don't, you're not only taking orders at the drive-thru. When things get backed up, you should go out and give them the food. Like, that's how you get really good at the job. But they, it often, they're not good at it until someone shows them. Well, guess what? Discipleship is, not, is like that, except it's even more like that. Because discipleship is about the whole of your life. It's not some s- simple little discrete activity. It's taking all of your humanity and let it be shaped into the person of Jesus and so in our life, all these years, I've looked at all these different versions of how to, how, to, how to train people, disciples. Pastor Young has done the same thing. And after many years, you know what we basically concluded? Every church is looking for some kind of like silver bullet answer on helping people to get thicker in their faith, in their prayer, in their obedience, in their repentance, and really live for Jesus. Everybody wants some simple, discreet Silver bullet method. And you know what? I've tried all these different methods and Pastor Young has too. And we've looked at all the different methods. You know what we found out? There is no silver bullet. You know how Jesus did it? He took a bunch of guys and said, do life with me, follow me, see me, know me. Know my heart. So like, how did these guys learn how to love the poor? Because they watched Jesus love the poor. How do they know they have like some heart problem? Well, they had that conversation with Jesus. Life on life. So in our church, we said, well, there's no other way to do it. This is the way Jesus did it. And there are no shortcuts. What we need to do is ask people to go into a season of discipleship where they're going to spill their life out, life on life, life on life, and, and, and a more mature brother or sister can lead you and then they'll find out where your faith problems are, where your breaks are. And so in our church, we invite people, we invite people into, it's like, it's, we call it a one-year commitment. It's really more like 28 weeks. 
over nine months. And then, and then you get a chance to re-up and then re-up. And so in our church, that's how we do it. Now, it's not a program and it's very high commitment. There's a lot of Bible passages that you're going you're to memorize Bible passages. <laughs> you're going to apply deep things into your life. Right now, we're, we're actually doing um, marriage. Okay? And so, you know, I've already heard from certain people who are doing discipleship right now going like, oh, yeah. Oh, this part of my marriage is not good. <laughs> and I guess we need repentance to grow as a disciple as a wife or as a husband. And these are things we're wrestling with. Now, I want to just say this one last thing before I go to the final close of my message. At some point or another, if you're going to be in our church, we would love for you to do this. That you would prayerfully consider making, learning, the, taking the high commitment of learning how to be a disciple and you would commit potentially three years of your life to really doing this. Right? And it's, it's a very serious commitment. And it's not just a commitment in terms of time. It's things like, um, one of the things that we do is we have this early thing where everybody shares their spiritual journey. And you know what you do in your, in your you, share, you share your spiritual journey when you are like totally bad and what's wrong with you and you just spill out all your most horrible sins. So everybody else can find out what's really messed up about you and so how they can help you and walk with you in Christ. That's part of the commitment too. So we want to go deep and we want you to have that deep healing power of Jesus go right into the deepest, hardest things of you and to go deep, you've got to spill out your whole life and we'll know each other life on life and that's how the Lord does it. Life on life, love, divine love, divine truth transforming us over time. So I want to challenge you now. I w Some of you are going like, I don't know if I could do that. I'm too busy. I'm too scared. <laughs> I'm too scared to do that. It's okay. But I hope that at some point in your life, you'd want to do this. And pray for it. And you can start asking, finding out who's doing it. And you could say, I want to do it. And we're, you can't sign up for it. Somebody has to prayerfully be feel led by the Holy Spirit to choose you to invite you into their group, right? So just because you want to do it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get to do it. And the next time we open this up won't be until, honestly, until um, the summer, right? But this is how our church does it. And we think over time, this is going to, we're going to make some, we're going to have these kinds of people, not consumers, disciples, okay? Now, let me close my message by sharing the gospel with you this way. You see what happened here in Antioch? This is something the whole world needs. This is something Silicon Valley needs. We don't have walls, like physical walls, where like, I don't like those kind of people. I'm not going to go into that neighborhood. But you know what? There aren't physical walls, but there are like invisible walls. And everybody is got varying degrees of racism. And... Um, this is why, like, your work team, it's multicultural work team, it doesn't like, always fly because these people think like this and these people think like this and the manager thinks differently and then there's, like, tension and, and then the work doesn't actually fly. Right? How can the world get to a place where it stops hating each other and, like, people of different ethnicities and race 
and different values can finally come together. And it's such a profound thing. People will have to say, you know, we need a new name for you. And one of the things I want, if you especially do not believe in Jesus here today, I want to challenge you to think about this, right? And if you are a Christian, I really want to challenge you to think about this. How can there ever be really true, deep unity among people who are incredibly different? How can that happen? So, um, one, one difference could be, this guy is really well-educated and rich. This person's really dirt poor and came from like a super broken family. How can those people be deeply united and actually love each other? Oh, this person is one skin color and this person's another skin color. This person doesn't even like this person's food. They think this food is smelly. <laughs> this person does not like the way this you know, person does relationships because he thinks their um, ethnicity and culture is like dishonorable. How do you get these people to be united into something like this? See, this, this chapter, Acts 11, it's an unbelievably important chapter. And Acts 11, all, there's so many people to their secular, and they think they're going to solve the problem of ethnicity and division, this divisiveness, and they would never consider the Bible, but the answer is actually right here. And here's how. Um, it's very paradoxical. As long as you show up and meet someone who's very different than you, and you just go, ill, you immediately think, you know, if I compare our ways to their ways, we're better. I don't need their ways. As soon as anybody think you think that, you can never really be united to those people. <laughs> Let's say even like your, your culture is better at making people who are like really smart at something or this culture, because every culture is better at something. It's like actually objectively true. But as long as you show up and you bump up against a person who's different than you and you immediately go, I don't need what you got because we're, we're good. We're good. I'm good. I'm, this, this will never happen. So the way the movement starts to happen is actually very, very paradoxical. You have to look at yourself and your culture and what it has and realize it's not good enough. It's simply not good enough. We don't know how to do this. We don't know how to like love our neighbor. We don't know how, how to be um, merciful and kind. Heck, man, I mean, I don't even want to hand any of my money to anybody else, let alone go out there and help them. As long as every ethnicity and family has more of that attitude, it'll never happen. But as soon as you can look at yourself and honestly say, we're never going to make it on our own, then you're now taking the steps toward genuine truth and humility. And then if someone comes along, someone else has gone even lower, gone to the lowest, most rotten place where you are and has met you there, and has healed you there, then you'll be in awe of him. <laughs> and if you meet somebody else who has met you there and healed you there, and then, so, let's just say this person. I'm going to tell you an interesting story here now. Many years ago, I had a pastor friend. He was pastoring in New York City. He's in Queens at a church that's highly multi-ethnic. It's an, it's an Antioch kind of church. He had a friend who came out of Harvard, 
the dude graduated in three years with two degrees out of Harvard. This dude was a genius. He's Chinese. The genius guy is Chinese. Did not grow up in a Christian family. And when he was at Harvard, he just felt so much intense performance pressure. He just felt like I'm going to he get incredibly depressed until he met the God who said, your performance will never make it. My performance for you is the only way. And he became a Christian. Then he got recruited out of Harvard, worked for Wall Street, and started making massive money. Okay? So that's his story. But it's interesting. Then he goes around Manhattan, and he starts going to church with all these people highly successful and super driven, and he didn't want to go to church with these people because he was like saying, all these people are super performance-oriented, and that's, if that's all I am, I'm going to get totally depressed. That's how I ended up getting depressed. I'm, I, I'm not going to go to church with them. He goes, I got to go find some other kind of church. So then he crossed over into Queens. For those of you who know, Queens is poor. And this neighborhood of Queens is a lot poor. Found an Antioch-type church. He ended up going into this small group. Met this guy who grew up in a very broken home. He was Caucasian and used to be a heroin addict until he found Jesus. They met each other, and when they would start talking, they would say, oh, you're a heroin addict. Well, me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a success addict. Same difference. I worship success God, you worship heroin God, and then they're like, yep, and they're like, but now we both have Jesus. And they became buddies. Really close buddies. That's, Antioch. That's not consumers showing up. I'm going to do a little bit of church, get what I like out of church, and then move on. No, we're looking for somebody who wants to follow and find the real power of the gospel. And when they found it together, these disciples, when they came together, they found out we're not just disciples, we're brothers. And we're family. And we're united. We don't look anything alike. We come from two totally different worlds. And in this world, we should never be friends. But because Jesus has died the death we deserve to die and gave us a new life we could have never given, all our divisions go away. And we're together. This is what missional discipleship looks like. Okay, this is what it looks like. That's the kind of church I want our church to be. This is the kind of church God wants us to be. Antioch Church in Silicon Valley. Let's pray. We are so insecure and so prideful and we see people different than us, different socioeconomic class, different ethnicity, even different foods. And then we're like, oh, I don't need them. I'm good on our own. I'm good with my people. Oh, but we desperately need you. And then through you, we desperately need them. A new kind of community. Not doing a religion called Christians. People who really follow and know the deep glory and power salvation through Jesus. Not just the power to help my sins be forgiven, 
but to give me a friend and a family that I never thought I could ever have. A friend and a family that's missional, that crosses cultures, and forms a new kind of unity that only you can make happen, Lord Jesus. Lord, give us the hope, the ambition, and the faith to be genuine disciples, missional disciples, and make Revive Church a 21st century Antioch church, pleasing before your sight and glorious to our neighbors. In Jesus' name, amen.